I remember going to the bank with my spouse and the bank lady asking us, you know, what our liabilities and our assets were. And I had been working for a couple years at that point. And to be honest, I was like so embarrassed because all we had were liabilities at the time. And <laughs> there's like our cars. I'm like, oh, that's an asset. Like that's worth like a few thousand or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's, it's really not. Welcome to the On Fire Podcast, episode 15, with your hosts, Matt and Kellen. On Fire is a weekly podcast where we discuss financial independence, life hacking, frugality, minimalism, and living within your means. You guys remember reviews, right? That's that thing I'm constantly nagging you to do. Well, I just want to give a huge shout out to Bodro22, who left us a comment on May 7th. It, it made Kellen and I's day, so thank you so much. If you guys want to go and make our day, jump over to whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Just leave us a five-star rating and leave us a written review. Today's guest is Sarah Larby. Sarah is a speaker, interviewer, investor, and mentor for young professionals and millennials on real estate investing. I first met Sarah when Jeff Weibo and I were networking at Rain's Acre event, and she just really impressed us with how she's crushing it in the real estate investing game. And so Sarah's actually co-founded the So Right Meetup Group. So if you guys are in South Southern Ontario, kind of the Brantford, Burlington area, you definitely need to check out this meetup group, as well as check out my and Kellen's appearance on her podcast, the Where Should I Invest podcast. Yeah, it was neat to be on the other side of things. But let's dive into our interview with Sarah. Welcome to the show, Sarah Larvey. Thank you. So we'll dive into more of this later, but can you give us a quick like one minute summary of like the past year, what it's looked like for you? Wow. Yeah. So much has happened. Let me back up a little bit past the first year or the past year. I'm a real estate investor, but I also work full time. And I started a podcast in the past year. I started a real estate investing club as well. I've written a couple articles for the magazine. So, so much has actually happened. I think the biggest piece of it too is I hired a branding coach to help me because literally a year ago, I didn't even have a business card that says real estate investor. (laughs) And so he has totally helped me with creating a website, like a lot more structure. So this past year has been pretty crazy good. And I am right now sitting on the floor of a new cottage property that I purchased as we're putting furniture together this weekend. That's going to be a short-term Airbnb rental. And I am going to be closing on a house that we're planning on flipping, but potentially holding for as a BRRR as well that comes to close May 15th. And I purchased another rental property back in September. So right now we're in May. So I guess that counts as a about a year from now. And I also made about a hundred grand on a BRR property that I ended up buying in December, 2016. However, the tenants wanted to move in right away. So we let them and we didn't change it at that point in time, but they broke up in September. So we ended up renovating it and uh, December cashing out about a hundred grand from that house. Wow. Awesome. Isn't that great? Cause something similar happened to me and I thought, man, that, I'm making more on that one deal than I am on my day job for the entire year. And it took a lot. I mean, it took a lot of time, but it didn't take that much time. It didn't take, <laughs> you know, 40 hours a week for a year. No, it didn't. And that's exactly what I told myself because I'm not the one that was swinging that hammer, you know, putting that kitchen in. And it was about delegating and creating that team of people that are going to get you to your goals. And so really during the time that we were renovating it, maybe it was two hours a week for managing and just making sure that everything was going smoothly. But 
you know, a hundred thousand for maybe three months of work at two hours a week is totally worth it. I'd do that any day, right? That's fantastic. Absolutely. So let's dive back into your backstory a bit. So back to the roots. So can you walk us through your background and kind of how you discovered the idea of financial freedom, real estate investing, getting control of your personal finances? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just really crazy. I was like even 10 years old and I'm like, one day, you know, I'm going to be wealthy. And I always just for whatever reason thought and knew I was going to be where I am. And even though I'm not exactly where I want to be yet, I'm very, very, you know, much further ahead than probably anybody I know my age that's not doing what I'm doing. So I've always knew that I was going to create something. I don't know what it was. But then in about 2000, I think it was 2010, 2011, I remember going to the bank with my spouse and the bank lady asking us, you know, what our liabilities and our assets were. And I had been working for a couple years at that point. And to be honest, I was like so embarrassed because all we had were liabilities at the time. And <laughs> there's like our cars. I'm like, oh, that's an asset. Like that's worth like a few thousand or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's, it's really not. So I said, next time I'm going to the bank and they're going to sit down with us and do this whatever financial plan or help us towards our goals, I'm going to have something to show for it. And so like literally I went home and that weekend and I probably spent like eight hours a day, like that Saturday and eight hours on Sunday, like Googling how do people create income and wealth and, and passive income and how do they get rich and real estate seemed like the most obvious choice. Like there was stocks and mutual funds and I'm not a big fan, even though I tried it at first, the lack of control bothers me. And then there was starting a business and I didn't really have that many great ideas. And so real estate just seemed like it was the easier way to do it. And then so I just started researching, finding, you know, articles online about real estate investing. I started listening to podcasts, the bigger pocket podcast really helped me as well. And then there was the challenge of trying to convince my spouse as well to come on board and become landlords and investors. And so that took a couple years as well. So our, our first rental income was actually in 2013. Nice. What was that like getting your first rental paycheck? It was pretty cool. So our first tenant was actually his sister. So one of the, I guess, biggest objectives or objections rather that I had to overcome was, hey, what if you have a bad tenant and your tenant trashes the place or your tenant doesn't pay? And so we actually ended up starting with his sister. She needed a place to live closer to her daughter's school. But that first paycheck was awesome because in a way, we already knew she was moving in within a couple of days of closing on that property. And we knew what she was going to pay us and what it, it was going to cost us to carry that property. But it was the start of complete change of life. Wow. That, that's awesome. So we read that you have like 15 year plan to help people reach financial freedom. So what does that look like? Why is it 15 years? It doesn't have to be 15 years, but ultimately, you know, Having an income from your job definitely helps to be able to get financing and properties to get started. And I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to or that I help, they have an, a job and they're not necessarily looking at leaving it tomorrow. They'd like to leave it, but they still want to be able to have that security and then slowly start creating passive income. And one of the things I looked at even for me is, okay, so with a full-time job, what is the easiest, least complicated way to make money. And so buying cash flowing properties and doing it for the long term was the strategy that we started using. 
And if you just do that, I mean, it really doesn't take a lot of time out of your weekly schedule to manage properties. And if you have, you know, two, three, four, five, six, etc., it may just take a couple hours a month. And creating that passive income, that can be done in 10 years, it can be done in 15, but it can be done earlier too if you're using a strategy like BRRR. But to just simplify it and just to keep it easy for everybody to be able to say, I can do this too. It's not as crazy as trying to you know, find a buyer that's wanting to sell in your market and this and that. Sometimes it just gets so overwhelming. And so I just wanted to say, okay, like there's lots of stuff that is probably going to make you money faster, but it's also going to cut into your time. And so maybe single family properties where you're cash flowing and you're buying in a market, maybe like Brantford or London or St. Catharines, and you're making some income, you've got your appreciation, but you've got your mortgage pay down as well. In 15 years, if you buy, you know, one or two, you know, for the 10 years that you've got, you're probably going to get there. Again, everyone's got a different goal, right? So for example, my my goal was to create 25000 a month of passive income. So I need about 30 properties for that if I do the single family properties. Everyone's going to be a little different what they're looking at doing and their time frame, but it is really possible. And I do not want to be old to start enjoying my life. There is no way I'm going to be 65 and then now all of a sudden have the freedom to go and travel. I want to do it before. So I'm going to do what I can and I'm going to work my butt off to do it. That's awesome. And so how did you determine that dollar amount, that threshold of 25000 a month? Yeah. So I also looked at what I wanted to do, where I wanted to travel to. It doesn't have to be 25000 I could be very comfortable with less, but for the things that I liked and the things that I wanted to do and also living the life that I have currently, right? So over time, I've tried to do whatever I can to improve my income at my job by showing value and I'm in sales. So making sure that I was winning and getting deals. So I've, I've been over time able to help my income increase. And same thing with my spouse that I also want to make sure that I'm living better than I am now with the freedom. The 25000 a year, how I broke it down to about 29, 30 properties was actually, I sat down with my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom. You might've heard of her. And she basically does like a goals analysis with you about how old you want to be when you retire, how much time frame you're looking at, what kind of income you're looking at. And then she literally just breaks it down based on what strategy you're doing. And then she'll also make some other suggestions as well. But Originally, I thought I needed just 10 houses for whatever reason, <laughs> but that number... Look like, are those all the paid off or do you have mortgages on those in this theory? In this theory, they would be paid off. Right, right. Do you have a plan to acquire, say, a bunch more and then sell some and then pay off the, the first ones? Is that the idea? That's the idea. I've also started doing some BRRRs, which I think are really the way to go to accelerate it. So I know you guys do a bunch of that, but it... It really was a game changer when I saw that $100,000 paycheck when I literally just bought a house and renovated it and then got it reappraised. And I'm like, hmm, you know, like this is probably a better way to do it than to buy something and then wait. So and can you walk through for our listeners just what's like an example of like what's your typical property look like? What the numbers look like for say one of those one of 29 or 30 properties? Yeah, so not the BRR because I can talk about that afterwards. So in Brantford, Ontario, one of the things that I would recommend that people do is to become a market expert. So for example, like you guys are in London, so you know the London area really well, you know when a market is below 
market price. And so that's my recommendation is just become really familiar with one area. And so we've been able to buy under market, even still on MLS, just being able to buy sometimes sight and scene and just having your team take a quick look at it for you. So some of the properties, I mean, the first one I bought back in 2013, I'm fine with sharing all the numbers with you and where they are now. So the first one was actually 129,000. Today, that's about 200,000. The second one that we bought in 2014, that was 177. Actually, we just got that one reappraised at 290 just this past month for 177. And actually that house, there was a fire in it a few years uh, prior in 2009. So it was rebuilt from 2009 standards, which was awesome. (laughs) Wow. So how much did you put into some of these like in renovation costs? So most of these actually were turnkey. And so, you know, like you're probably looking at five grand, give or take, but they were, they've been turnkey. The property number three was 207. That one is about 295 right now. That was in 2015. Property number four. So the more that you buy, the more comfortable you can get with the area. So, you know, we were able to buy property number four for 165,000. That's probably about 250 now. Property number five, that one was the one that we BRR'd. We bought that for 151,000. Like literally we bought it like within a couple hours of it hitting the market and got that reappraised after we put in 30 grand for 275. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people might say it's easy to, you know, make all this money when the market's appreciating, you know, you, you've held during a, a time when the market's gone up a lot. But like, how did you decide which neighborhoods to invest in and that kind of thing? And like, have you noticed it? Have you noticed that certain neighborhoods that are appreciating more? Was that kind of part of your strategy? It was, for sure. So I look at what I want in terms of tenants and tenant profile and and school zones. And my tenant profile is families. And I also looked at the supply and demand. So like, for example, like in Brantford, Ontario, and every market's going to be different. So do your research on your market. In Brantford, Ontario, there's Laurier University, the second campus, and they had, you know, they started in 2008, 2009. They have about 4,000 students now, they're going up to 15,000. But what that means is that there's a lot of investors that are going in and like scooping up the four five bedroom properties, Mm -hmm. even the three bedroom properties. And so they created like this huge demand for three and four bedroom houses. And there are some that, you know, for example, in the North End that are quite expensive, I can't cash flow there as much. So I look at Eagle Place, which is still a very up and coming area. I look at Homedale, I look at West Brant, Old West Brant, Terrace Hill. Those were, in my opinion, still very affordable. And because of that demand, I'm able to get fifteen to $1,600 a month rent on these properties to be and and they're single family properties because there's just not many of them. And right. so for sure you want to be a market expert. For sure you want to be able to be familiar because some of the properties you're going to be buying day one. Like sometimes you don't have time to go and visit it. It's going to be scooped up. And there's definitely other ways other than MLS, but if you're looking at MLS and it's on MLS and it's been there for a couple of days, chances are, you know, the good ones are probably already gone by then. So just becoming very familiar, but also looking at the supply and demand and also looking at the school zones if you want to rent to families, right? So downtown Brantford, for example, I stay away from. I don't like the school in that area. However, for student rentals, it might be a better option. So it, it really depends. And one of the things that I really wanted to do is to, to also make it as easy as possible for my spouse to be on board with this. So I didn't want to create any extra too much work for him in the beginning. So that's why a lot of our properties were fairly turnkey. Now that we're, you know, in it more, we've got more experience. I just bought a flip property as an example. We're going to either hold it at the end or or sell it. We don't know yet. We're going to see. But now we've got a solid team in place. We've 
got a lot more experience, so it becomes easier to do those more complicated deals that take more time because now you've got a team that you can just delegate to. Awesome. So talk us through why Brantford in particular and why this specific model of property. So you kind of talked us through, you know, you decided you were going to get control of your personal finances. You kind of decided real estate was right for you. So what about Brantford real estate in particular? Yeah. Were you already familiar with that area? Yeah. Originally, it was actually a fluke because our first tenant was his sister and his family's from there. So that's why. However, you know, I was looking at Hamilton, I was looking at some other areas. And then you started looking at some that we started looking at some of the fundamentals in Brantford, and especially this post secondary education, even the, the jobs that were out available, the transportation, the bus route that was going back and forth that was expanding to, to Hamilton. So there's still a lot of fundamentals that we liked. And personally, I, you know, said, okay, well, we have one out there, let's just add a second one and see what happens because it might just be easier to have one electrician to go do two properties if you need him to do something or a plumber to do two. As an example, like the second tenant, I ended up finding her on Kijiji first and we found a house that worked for both of us that was our budget and her budget. And she's still there to this day, but we ended up buying a house that, you know, we are doing something, I think, outside the box by finding the house with the tenant. It's not a rent to own, it's just a regular rent, but it was one of those those things. And I realized that the tenants are pretty good. You know, like in Brantford, like a lot of the time you're thinking, oh, you're going to get the bad tenants. It's Brantford. It's got the stigma, but you have for every house I have, I've got eight to 10 applications and I can do it and I can fill it before they actually close, which is, you know, something that I would recommend as a tip. Don't wait until you close to start advertising, advertising, advertise as you remove the conditions so that you can fill the property upon closing. Absolutely. And so you said you're buying still mainly off of realtor.ca, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm assuming it's still pretty aggressive in that market. It's very aggressive in our market here in London, Ontario. So do you have to go in with cash offers on these properties or are you still conditional when you're making your offer? I'm removing conditions. Okay. So you're just going in cash. So essentially, are you in a position where worst case scenario, you'd be able to sell finance or are you just confident in your finance that you'll be able to finance it after the fact? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's really important is to work with a mortgage broker that really understands your financial decision or your financial situation. So I still have financing ability and I still have... So one of the things that I always suggest that you do is when you've got equity in your properties, get them refinanced and just put a HELOC on them. You don't have to use the money, but at least the money is there should you need anything. And I think that a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to you know, refinance and take the money. You don't have to take the money. Just leave it as a line of credit when you need it. And if you need it, then you can use it. But so far, I'm financing. I still have another two with A lenders and then Equitable Bank. As per my mortgage broker, there's about 30 to 40 more that can be done. So one of the things that is helping is having a, a job job to be able to finance these. Yeah, that's been a big thing for me as well. Just being able to qualify, you need to show that steady income. So what has it been like managing all of this while working your full-time job? Do you have the flexibility to take calls from tenants and contractors or maybe in your case, a lot of single family homes? So maybe you're not getting as many calls as I am. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think I'm getting as many calls as you are. I mean, there'll be like some things here and there, but I think it's just all about delegating. I mean, I've got a couple handymen that are ready to go if something happens or a good plumber, a good HVAC person. You know, I am very big on delegating. Like, I don't want this to be another full-time job. And it's not. I mean, you know, I'm spending two hours a month 
on it. Like the majority of the time is looking for better deals. And I've started, you know, knocking on some doors now because MLS is getting harder and there's definitely more competition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even last year it was still okay, but now it's getting harder. So we started knocking on some doors, leaving some mailers, doing a few things outside the box. I've got some neighbors also calling me about some properties that are coming up for sale shortly. So just putting a bug in the neighbor's ears on, you know, the properties that you own. So there's some things that we're doing, but yeah, I mean, it's not as time consuming, I think, for the single family houses as people think. Yeah. And was that consideration when you got into single family houses or is that just a happy coincidence? No, that's a big consideration because we just wanted to, or I just wanted to make sure that this was as smooth as possible so that I could keep acquiring them and not have, you know, him, aka my spouse, have headaches over this kind of stuff. So it was strategic in the beginning. And I think over time, it now, you know, he's come around 180 degrees and sees it as a business. But initially, I'm like, okay, well, you know, now we've got his sister, like, how do I do this as smoothly as possible so that we can create that income and change our lives and not, you know, suffer headaches and <laughs> and issues yeah. along the way of tenants, you know, calling because the other tenants making noise. And at some point, you know, we do want to get into multifamily. I don't know if Brantford, Ontario specifically, I'm super excited about doing duplexes there because I don't think that based on the amount of difference, it's going to be worth doing. I'd rather, for Brantford, I'd rather either do single families, still three and four bedroom in the areas, or find a 10 unit or something along those lines, which I'm also looking at. They're just not as, you know, they don't come across them as easily. So, and so do you know, is there an exact date in mind when you think you're going to hit the uh, threshold for your number of properties as well? Is that the same date that you no longer have full time employment? Or what does that picture look like? Do you have that mapped out? I do. But you know, it's funny because we were on my podcast earlier and I said, goals always change, right? So I think once you get there, you're going to have a different goal. And my goals have even slowly changed from the original goal that I had. At this point, I think my maximum would be about, I'm 33 now. So my maximum I want to be is about 40. And I think that there are ways now that we're more experienced to be able to say, okay, let's flip this one. Let's do a BRR on this one. And just mm-hmm. to create that, you know, income faster. At the yeah. end of the day too, I still actually really enjoy what I'm doing. And I think it's all based on who your manager is and who your team is. So I'm, you know, I'm not looking at leaving tomorrow, but I also do this for creating that freedom and creating, you know, freedom away from this cold weather to be honest, like the biggest <laughs> reason I'm doing yeah. this is to be a snowbird and to be able to have, you know, somewhere warm to live half the year. <laughs> and so have you found that building up this real estate portfolio, does it give you more freedom in your job? Do you feel more comfortable or more at a position of strength? Or is it something you kind of keep secret from your employer? No, I am very open about it. I think as long as you're not doing it between, you know, eight to five, then whatever you're doing outside of those hours, I mean, I could be watching TV, I could be going to the gym, like it doesn't really matter. So I'm very open about it. And actually, one of my colleagues ended up buying, I think he's at five properties now in Brantford. (laughs) So I don't think it's a secret. I think it's something that should be inspiring to other co-workers. And I think it's something that you know, and I and I say this to a lot of my friends, like have other sources of income. I have a friend that just got let go from a job and, you know, I've yeah. been suggesting, hey, you know, why don't you create some side income from some other things and you never know what's going to happen. 
And so, coworkers can be a great source of private money as well. They, they see what you're doing, they see your success, and they probably make similar money and they should be able to, you know, maybe help finance something or maybe a joint venture partner. They can be a passive partner. Yeah, absolutely. That's always an option. I do like to separate the two just to keep them separate. But yes, I've had some <laughs> requests from people. Yeah, <laughs> but oh, you know, one wow. of the things that you that happen as you're doing more and more of this is that people will come to you. So I still have other, I would rather work with somebody that I don't know as well, or that's not a coworker in a joint venture or somebody that I have met at, at a networking event or some type of investing event or those types of things before yeah. I work with people I work with. Right. And for you, why has real estate been the best way to like find financial independence versus, you know, real estates that are versus like stocks or whatever else people are doing to, you know, just save up and save up and get their passive income? Well, let's put it this way. I went from zero to over a million in net worth in a matter of four years. I would never have been able to do that any other way, you know, and I'm pretty open with my numbers. So I just did a presentation recently, and in those four years, when I factor in my cash flow and my appreciation and my mortgage pay down, because that's something a lot of people forget, I'm making like 170000 a year for like two hours a month of work, right? And, yeah. and, and my strategy is slow and steady. How could you not want to do that? Yeah, no, I, I, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think like, you know, some people think, okay, and there's a good chance that a chunk of our listeners are like, well, I want to build up passive income, but I don't want it through real, do through real estate because, you know, there's work involved and I want it to be passive. And, you know, you don't necessarily need to, but if, inter- if it does interest you at all, you know, it can be a great way to build your wealth and you don't necessarily need to hold that real estate forever. You can buy properties under value and right there you make 50 grand and then you renovate it and you add strategically and maybe you build another 50 grand. And like, it's really hard to do that through just saving from your day job or whatever and getting your like average of, you know, 6% return on investment through stocks. You know, it's active, but it's not as active as a lot of people think. And you can make, you know, a lot more than you are typically at your day job. And so are you currently just mainly focused on building up your real estate income or do you have other avenues like other side hustles or uh, income streams that you're currently working on? No, I mean, it's mostly this. I mean, I also have a real estate club. I mean, it's not like making us money that much, but <laughs> you know, it, it does. Okay. I also have a little bit of stocks, marijuana stocks, but I think ultimately, like when I look at my returns, the real estate is the way to go. It is where you have the most amount of control. And so you know, there's other things that, yes, I can make some money off doing other things, but I think doing it with real estate investing, it's it's so worth the hassle. Like it's not passive, passive. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, look at where the advice is coming from. Like if a bank is saying, oh, you should be doing like stocks and mutual funds, which is probably what most people think of is banks are not going to tell you to become an investor. Like it's just and schools are going to tell you and your parents are going to tell you like, unless you know somebody or you're really determined to self teach yourself, like it's very hard to understand it. And so I think it is the best thing to do. I think it's way better. You have way more control than anything else that you can do. But most people are not going to tell you about it. Because as a financial advisor, you're not making any money telling people to take their money out of their mutual funds that they're getting commission yeah. on, put it in like real estate. But by far, you know, even RSPs and tax-free savings account, as an example, like you could use that money and lend it to somebody on for real yeah. estate 
or vice versa. You can borrow somebody's RSP money or tax-free savings account money and use it for that. So there's just tons of ways, like you have way more control and ultimately like the returns are much better. And the returns sometimes that people tell you on real estate is appreciation. Okay. That's like the icing on the cake. That's not even a real return. Like calculate your cash flow and calculate your mortgage pay down plus the appreciation. That's the real, like that's the return that they should be looking at. And you know, the bank's saying, oh, you're going to get like 6% or 8% or whatever in stocks and like 2% on even in GICs. Listen, I like, if you just factor in your mortgage pay down, that's five to 6% a year. Just that if your house doesn't even appreciate a penny. And if you don't make any cash flow, like, why would you not want to do that? Yeah, it's funny how easily people can overlook it. Like, with, you know, five, six properties, you can easily have $30,000 a year just in mortgage pay down, which is guaranteed. Like, People talk about the risk of real estate. You're not sure if it's going to go up in value. It doesn't need to go up in value. If it goes up in value, that's just, like you said, it's the icing on the cake. So what have your friends and family, uh, like, what has the reaction been with them in terms of like, you know, when you die, when you, I mean, you're still working your full-time job. So uh, maybe they're comfortable with that. But like, what about all the stuff on the side? What is their, what's your experience been with them? Yeah. I mean, they've always been very supportive. They have their own business. So they've been entrepreneurs, like they don't have a regular job either. So I think that definitely helps because they they get the entrepreneurial part. They're not investors, but I think over time, like they are kind of curious about what I'm doing. And my mom like now wants to invest some of her money <laughs> into potentially a Brantford property. So I might take her by the hand and show her that a little bit. So I was lucky that they've always been very receptive. And I think ultimately, though, like as I know a lot of my friends that are investors, they didn't have that initial reaction and they have to convince their parents or their parents think that they're crazy. And I will say this is that if your family members or your friends are giving you advice and they're not where you want to be, do not listen to them. They want to help you, but they don't know better. So I would say take your advice from people that you want to aspire to be like. And that who have the things that you're looking for or who have the time and the freedom or whatever it is, take your advice from those people and thank the others and say, thank you for, you know, looking out for my best interest. That's great. But it's not the end all and be all. If they think that you're crazy, hey, you know, go find go find a real estate uh, investment club and join that and you'll realize that you are just totally normal out there. A hundred percent. And so you deal with a lot of kind of first time investors, right? Between your real estate group and your coaching and stuff. So what are some common hurdles you see frequently that real estate investors or aspiring real estate investors come up against that they struggle with? I think when you're starting out is just all of the discussions about how real estate investing is risky or, you know, tenants, just nightmare stories. And of course, that's the stuff that hits the news. Of course, that's the stuff that like creates stories. You're going to hear the negative. And I think just explaining the positive parts of it and you know, the good that can happen from it. And then I think afterwards, it's okay, well, you know, how does this actually work and the process? And, you know, how do I actually know what I'm supposed to buy or where to even look for? You know, because I would not want to buy a condo in Toronto right now, or I would not want to buy a million dollar house anywhere, or even a half a million dollar house. And and just looking at what your strategy is. So just talking to them about, okay, do they want the cash flow? Or are they looking at you know time frame? What time frame is it? Something that's five years? Is it fifteen years? And then 
and then figuring out based on their answers, then what is the best strategy for them? Because I think that there's tons of ways that you can make money in real estate and there's tons of successful people doing it in every single way, but what's the best thing for them? Right. And maybe it's not buy and hold. Maybe it's flipping. Maybe it's something else. Right. So just having that conversation. And then I think the other pieces, the financing piece and the money piece. So creating some different ideas on, you know, how they can find money and also letting them know t- like about the financing and, and the financing hurdles and the challenges that I've went through originally working at a bank instead of working with a broker. Because there is such a thing as a financing wall and you're going to hit it at some point and how soon is, is just a matter of proper planning. Absolutely. So when we go to like a lot of meetups and other networking events and that type of, type of thing, there tend to be a lot more men than women. Have you noticed any challenges or maybe hopefully advantages to being a female in real estate? Like occasionally I've noticed at some events, it tends to be, you know, if a couple comes, the man gets the handshake and the woman doesn't necessarily get one and they have to like, build some sort of legitimacy before people will even like listen to what they have to say. I mean, hopefully that's not the case for you, but what is, what has your experience been like? Yeah. You know what? Maybe some people experience it. I think ultimately I'm a co-founder of a real estate club. So I think maybe I'm in a bit of a different position because I've already done it. And I'm fairly like when I speak to people in terms of like maybe contractors or things like that, like that, I think because I've really self-educated myself and I use, you know, real estate investing lingo, this kind of stuff, I think it helps for sure. There definitely is more men than women. But I think it's also 2018. And I think people are slowly starting to, you know, accept it. You know, the other thing I will say is, and you guys are probably in the same boat, too. I don't know if it's so much being, you know, men or or women or whatever. But we're also really young. So when you look at the people that are going into these investment clubs, and networking clubs for real estate, most of them are not as young as we are. So I'm 33. And I think, you know, sometimes that they're like, Oh, you know, I I remember going to the investor forum a couple years ago, and then people just were assuming that I was a real estate, like agent. I'm like, what makes you think I'm a real estate agent? Because I'm (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, that was probably the, the one piece that I would say, you know, people just shouldn't assume but yeah. you know, stand your ground and show them that you know what you're talking about. And I, the other thing too to keep in mind is that I think people that are new to it think that this is all a very competitive world and it's very cutthroat. And it's actually not. Like most people that are huh. successful are going to help you if you are, you know, networking and you they see you at the same mm-hmm. events over and over and you start building those relationships. And I think over time, like you know, you're network is your net worth. And you're just going to be like one of them. And it's not as competitive as you think, like people that are doing well, will want to share that with others and help others. Yeah, I I mean, I remember, like, for the first 20 minutes of like, one of the first meetups was like, Oh, these are my competitors. And then I was like, No, they're not like everyone's in this together. And I haven't even thought about it since. But occasionally, I see, you know, somebody come in and like, Oh, I don't really want to tell you about my deal or like, Oh, you know, how are you doing that? Oh, you know, just uh, creative. And they don't like really tell you anything. And like, I think at the end of the day, people really think there's a lot more competition than there is out there. And there's maybe they think there's not enough, not enough money or there's not enough deals or there's not enough, you know, real estate out there. And like, it's just not the case. There's, there's more like Matt always says on his YouTube channel, there's more than enough money out there for us to all make it. 
And it's not this competition. The more you bring, the more value you provide to other people, the more you're willing to share, like, like you're sharing all these numbers and that kind of thing. A lot of people aren't comfortable sharing that stuff. And I think it's just the more you share, the more you're open, the, the more value you're going to get back. Yeah. And I think a lot of those people too are probably going to become your joint venture partners at some point for something, right? So they may be doing deals with you in the future. Yes, absolutely. hundred percent agree. And so one thing we want to chat with you about was you have a podcast. We were just on it earlier today. What sort of value have you seen from social media, from doing a podcast? What sort of legitimacy does it create? We'd love for you to share kind of with our audience what you've experienced from getting into it. Yeah. So it's funny. So last year, I was at that wealth forum where there was like Tony Robbins and Pitbull. And then there was a guy. Oh, we were there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. like yeah. a lot of people there. A lot of people were just going for the, you know, the Pitbull concert, unfortunately. But there is some, some good content. <laughs> and I had never heard of Pitbull until that, which is probably, <laughs> probably embarrassing, but also probably I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But there was one of those breakout sessions and it was actually on podcasting. And so I ended up signing up for the course and decided to launch a podcast. And you know what? I wasn't really... I didn't have a goal for it. I didn't really have a motive for it other than, hey, you know what? I want to just educate people as much as possible. And I want to make it, you know, Canadianized content and feature people that are doing it that are just like everyone else out there that can inspire others. And so it was just, it was started just as that. And then, you know, I've gotten some contacts from the website, people that came out to our networking event that are now regulars. And I think it's just creating a network of people and being able to help one another. And I think if I can help people, they're going to be, once they're successful, they're going to be able to do it and they're going to pass it down. And it is nice to be, you know, seen as a leader in the industry for sure. And I think that's part of what's happening and opportunities of being able to speak on different stages. So there's definitely a lot that can come out. I just think that, you know, just don't start a podcast for the money because really it's more work than anything and you really don't make any (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking at it as like you want to educate and you want to create your brand as a leader and somebody that can help others, then I think good things will happen from that. I like that. Like we talk about the idea of building legitimacy. You call it being viewed as a leader, which is a great way to put it. And I like to think that at the very least, people are going to ask you fewer questions in terms of like, are you legitimate? And you can skip past that whole first stage and dive into business. And, you know, it's really hard to measure the value of that when you're, you know, paying to get your podcast edited or you're, you know, spending all this time and and you're, you know, focusing on social media and whatever, you're not earning necessarily any money from it. But you know, it does translate in this very uh, difficult to measure way. And I think that if anyone out there isn't focusing on their Instagram or their Facebook or their YouTube or their podcast or whatever, and they want to be viewed as a leader and they want to be viewed as someone who understands what they're doing and build legitimacy for themselves, they're missing out. I think it's a really valuable thing to do. Do you have any other social media that you're focusing on? Obviously, the podcast is a big one. I saw you have an Instagram account. Yeah, so I'm actually with a friend of mine, Sarah Edder, we're going to be starting a YouTube channel. So we bought the flip property together, actually, and we are going to be going through the process and filming it. And it's actually going to be called Rich Millennial, Poor Millennial. Nice. I like that. So we're excited about that. You know, in terms of social media, so I am just like a weird, like untypical millennial where... I don't actually have a Facebook and I just got Instagram and I was getting it managed for me for a while. Same thing with Facebook. 
And the only thing I had was LinkedIn. But I realized that, you know, stuff happens on social media and you have to have some presence. So I am now managing my Instagram. (laughs) Of course, I have LinkedIn, but that's more like work specific. And, you know, one of the big changes this year, like I mentioned in the beginning, was getting a branding coach and talking about strategy and having him guide me towards everything that I've been doing, right? So I had a lot of pieces of different things and there was really no core brand. So like that's been a big change, I think, this year that's helped quite a bit. A little side tangent, LinkedIn. I mean, I've, I have one and I know everyone seems to have one. Have you found any legitimate value from it? Personally, I've gotten zero out of LinkedIn. I mean, it's part of my typical, my career thing. I basically just put my resume on it. Headhunters spam me and it sits there so that people can look me up. I mean, I guess, I guess people can Google your name and they'll come across your LinkedIn. Have you found any, have you personally found any like any actionable or like business connections through LinkedIn? Yeah, I have. I mean, LinkedIn, because I don't really have a whole lot of other social media until like very recently, it was like my one social media thing. So I definitely... (laughs) Because people can't find you anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) That's Well, that's probably actually it. But I've had some people reaching out for uh, maybe they heard me on another podcast and they want me on theirs. Or I've had a few people connect with me from Brantford that we've ended up meeting with. So like I have, but I think probably it's because also people couldn't find me anywhere else before. (laughs) So that's probably actually it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. So will you ever retire or like what does financial independence look like for you? Retiring from a job, yes. Retiring from life and always creating new goals and trying to achieve them, no. No way. I want to live, but I want to be productive and I want to be able to do something with my life and and be fulfilled. And I don't think it's going to be laying on a beach for the rest of my life once I'm retired. I think it's about changing what you're doing and really deciding for you what you're doing with that time. And it's probably going to be still along the lines of real estate investing. I'm actually starting to write a book right now. So, you know, I'd like to get more into that. Different things. I think things will come up as you have more time to do it. I don't think that for me, retiring fully in the sense of like doing nothing is ever going to be an option, like an opportunity. I just don't even think that would be fun. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's pretty much what everybody's always said that they're not. I mean, we do have people that want to lay on the beach, but mm-hmm. even there, even then, they want to be working. Not forever, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have a reoccurring segment we just call the fire four. So it's just four relatively quick questions. And so the first one, Sarah, is what are you grateful for? I am grateful for my family and my health. Nice, clean. <laughs> so on the opposite side of things, what's a guilty pleasure of yours or maybe a tool or something in your life you just can't live without? My lip balm. <laughs> your lip balm. Yeah. That's it's good. a little bit of obsession, like an obsessive thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So is there a frugality tip or life hack that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think that the reason I got here today was because I made some sacrifices in the beginning when I, you know, decided that I was going to not take vacation and cash out my vacation or work a second job to be able to save for that first income property. And I think that for the first two years to really say, I'm going to just cut down and be as frugal as possible so I can live how I want to live afterwards. That was the best decision I've ever made. That's awesome. Yeah. So last question is, 
what would the hero of your own movie do in your life right now? I think if I could help millennials, young people that do not even know where to start and that don't even understand that there is such a thing as real estate investing that they can still rent in Toronto and live there. And instead of trying to save two or $300,000 for the down payment, you can get like three, four houses <laughs> for that, if not way more, depending on where you are. And then just be able to say like, look, your life, you know, you don't have to rent forever. There is some opportunity and then just to create more millennial millionaires through real estate investing. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sarah. And before we wrap up, we always like to get our guests to ask the audience a question. So is there a question you'd like to ask our audience? Sure. So one of the biggest things I believe in is productivity and not wasting time. Because when you're productive and you're doing things with your time that are valuable and that are going to go towards your goals, then you're going to get further ahead. So my question is, what are you doing right now that is a time waster, that is not productive, and that is not helping you reach your goals. So for example, are you waking up and just rolling out of bed and going to work rather than waking up another hour earlier? Or how many hours of TV are you watching? Or are you listening to the radio instead of listening to some podcasts or some types of you know educational material? So what are you doing right now that is the biggest time waster? And how are you going to make that change so that you are being more productive moving forward. It's a great question. So otherwise, where is the best place for people to get in touch with you? So they can reach out to me. So they can go to my website at sarahlarby.com, S-A-R-A-H-L-A-R-B-I.com. They can also email me at sarah at sarahlarby.com. And also they can also come to the So Right Club, which is Southern Ontario Real Estate Investing Training Club, which is a monthly training, educational training club that there's three founders, me, as well as Daniel St. Jean and Alfonso Salemi. And it's very educational. And we want to be able to give an opportunity for people to network and learn. So they can go to that. That's in Burlington. And if they're interested in So Right, they could probably find the information on Facebook if they just type in S-O space R-E-I-T and then club. And otherwise, they can also listen to my podcast. It's called Where Should I Invest? And if they Google that or they Google my name, then they should be able to find that as well. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so much for being so on much. the show. Thanks for having me. It was really fun, guys. It's great to talk to another real estate investor focused on the slow and steady approach to growing her portfolio while still growing her influence by podcasting, public speaking, and creating a network for fellow investors. Sarah has some really great success with real estate, especially burring rental properties, which is my favorite way to grow a portfolio. Her growth was fantastic, and she shows how strategic investing can grow your net worth faster than many other streams of income would otherwise allow. And so while you're waiting for the next episode of this podcast, jump over to Facebook, join the London on Fire community, and follow us on Instagram, at On Fire Podcast. And make sure to tune into the next On Fire podcast to meet more people, hear their stories, and learn from their mistakes. Our next episode is going to be with Meet Kevin from YouTube, so you definitely want to hear that episode. Thanks for listening. This is Matt. And Kellen, signing off. And until next episode, remember, being normal, buying stuff doesn't make you happy, and always remember what Vicky Robin said. Once we're above the survival level, the difference between prosperity and poverty lies simply in our degree of gratitude.